You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. All right, so the first thing that we're uh, going to look at, we've only got two verses, so um, I'll do my best to keep it short. But the first thing that we're going to see is that um, we're being given here an exhortation from Isaiah to, to justice, right? And that this is what Isaiah 61 verse 8 says, just that first sentence, For I, the Lord, love justice. I, the Lord, love justice. So the Lord, through Isaiah, is talking to His people, the people of Israel, and He says, I, the Lord, love justice. Now, many things come to mind when we, when we think of that word justice, right? We think of maybe criminal justice or racial justice or social justice. But the word, as it's used here, ultimately means more and encompasses all of those things. It means the way that human life and human society were supposed to be. It means that the Lord loves to see humanity interact in the way that He had always designed for it to interact, which includes justice socially, justice racially, justice in any number of spheres. That the Lord loves this. That there's a harmony and a rhythm with which God created the world and of which God said in Genesis, it is is good. Through Adam's sin and our own, we've marred that goodness. We've disrupted that harmony. We've interrupted that rhythm with which God designed the world to operate in. That although there is injustice, yet the Lord, as Isaiah tells us, loves justice. Genesis tells us that story at length. It also tells us, though, this. That we've been made in the image of God. That you and I, as human beings, by our very nature, share in the image of God. Although that image is absolutely marred, that you and I, by virtue of our humanity, by virtue of our DNA, by virtue of how He has fearfully and wonderfully made each and every one of us, that we are made in His very image. One of the ways that we are made like God is that we share, I think, we share His desire, His love for justice. And here's why I think that. Let's read a little bit further in verse 8. It says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. So the verse tells us that God not only loves justice, but that He hates robbery and wrong. Why is that? My contention, based on the context, would be that the Lord hates robbery and wrong because it actively distorts all of the rhythm all of the harmony that He intended for us to operate in. This is who God is. Isaiah is revealing for us God's character, His nature, what He's like, who He is. He loves what is right and He hates what is wrong with all of the intensity of His divine being. Right? In that these, right, these two words 
are the poles, the ends of the spectrum. There is love over here at the furthest end, and there is hate over here at the furthest end. And the Lord loves justice, but He hates robbery and wrong. Now, I, I made the statement earlier that, that there's a way I see in this verse that we can recognize that that we actually bear that image of God, that we are like Him in a sense. And the way I can think it, or the way I think it can be shown that we are made in the image of God is that we regularly join God in His hatred for injustice. A few brief examples, right? Maybe it's when we are angered by radical terrorists murdering Parisians in the city streets. Or whether we are angered by policemen gunning down unarmed citizens. Or whether we are angered when the guilty go free through loopholes or through lies. Or whether we are angered when the CEO embezzles and defrauds his customers, those who he was meant to be loyal to, and ultimately causes them to lose all that had belonged to them. Or whether it's anger at the sale and the trafficking of human fellow flesh and blood for the work of sex slavery. Or whether it's would-be politicians dehumanizing entire races, classes, and people groups based on gross mischaracterizations, mischaracterizations, misrepresentation, and misinformation. Or maybe it's when the innocent are somehow proven guilty in our quote-unquote justice system and are serving currently life sentences. The list could go on and on and on. And each one of them, maybe not all of them, but, but certainly one of those for each of us in this room probably, probably ignited a bit of anger. And what Isaiah is telling us and what Isaiah is showing us is that this is not only a modern issue, a modern problem, or a modern way of thinking, in that we have not progressed to a place where we love justice. We have always longed for justice. How odd then that we have yet to find it. Right? The annals of human history are littered with example after example after example of injustice. In fact, the book of Isaiah and really the, the whole rest of the Old Testament spends ample time delineating how those things are taking place in Israel among God's own people. And yet, here's the thing. right? Although the Lord is strongly exhorting the people of Israel to justice, the Lord is in their own injustice going to extend to them an extravagant mercy. Right? While it should encourage us, comfort us even, that God is against injustice, it should also cause us to reflect soberly. Because Isaiah here is not just speaking generally. He's speaking to Israel, right? He's speaking to His people, those people that belong to Him. And he's saying that all of those injustices and more are taking place among His people. And what he's trying to get them to recognize is this. That all those injustices, painful and real though they are, are ultimately just symptoms of the greatest injustice. 
Isaiah is telling them that for all their social, all their racial, all their criminal, all their religious injustice, their greatest injustice is robbing God of faithful worshiping and giving Him instead wrong and unfaithful worship. And as is regularly the case whenever we look at all of the problems of Israel and we want to point and say, you guys are dumb. Israel's problem is ultimately our problem. All the injustices that we not only experience, but also serve to perpetuate by our own inaction and action, ultimately stem from this greatest injustice of robbing God of the worship that is due Him, right worship, and giving Him instead a half-hearted and ultimately wrong worship. So this becomes sobering, right? This is what I mean by this. In that we can feel some of God's companionship in a righteous anger towards that which is unjust. And yet at the same time, if we begin to look carefully at our own lives, we begin to recognize that there is injustice in us. Which means this. If God hates injustice and God ultimately is coming to bring justice, then we should be afraid of His coming rather than eager for it. Isn't that odd? Right? I find it, I find it so funny, not funny, really. Uh, I find it so strange. I find it so sad. that, And I'm, I'm talking about myself personally here, but I think, I think you would probably join me in this. That I want justice so badly for some people. And that there are wrongs that I want to see made right. Not later, now. But I don't want it for me. We want justice so badly for others, but we don't want it for us. It seems to me that if we don't want justice for ourselves, then we have no right to demand it of others. And when we know that justice ultimately brings doom for us, we have no recourse but to plead for mercy. And so, just just by reading this half a verse, I don't know about you, but my heart's sinking a little bit. And yet, halfway through the verse, there's this really strange little turn that makes all the difference. And this is what it says. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. Where we should fear God's justice, Isaiah tells Israel and us by extension that because of the anointed one in verse in verses 1 through 3 of this same chapter, because of this anointed one, we will receive a recompense that is utterly different and utterly removed from all of the injustice that we perpetuate. Isaiah tells us that we will instead receive mercy, that in spite of the fact that God has a justified right complaint against Israel and a justified right complaint against you and me, that He's going to withhold the penalty due for that complaint. That's what mercy is, right? The withholding of justified punishment. He's going to extend an extravagant mercy. 
But he's not just going to extend an extravagant mercy. He's also going to give an, an astounding and an incarnating grace. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. All right, let's read the fullness of verses 8 and 9. It says this, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. So look, for... For the better part of 50 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is listing the reasons that God has just complaints against them. He lists, list after list of the injustices that they have perpetuated. And yet this is what we arrive at. That He will faithfully give Him their recompense and is not actually going to be their doom, but it's actually going to be to their great favor. That God is going to make an everlasting covenant with them and that the result of that covenant will be that their offspring will be known among the nations. That their descendants will be known in the midst of the peoples. And that all who see them shall acknowledge that they are the offspring of the Lord. The offspring that the Lord is blessed. So here's what Isaiah is telling us, right? God is not just going to give extravagant mercy by, by removing from us a punishment that is due us, but that He's actually also going to extend an astounding grace to accompany it, right? Grace being a giving of something that was not merited, right? So He's going to extend this mercy and this grace to us. And He's going to do so by making an everlasting covenant with us. Right? Now this is, this is interesting on, on more than, than one level. Right? If, if the previous verse tells us that, that God loves what is right, that He hates what is wrong with all the intensity of the divine being then it is unthinkable that God would fail to keep His covenant. Right? So this means that, look, no matter what comes after Isaiah, like, no matter what comes after this proclamation, God is going to keep His promise. You know why? Because to not do so would be inconsistent with His character. To not do so would render Him unjust. It would render Him to be that thing which He hates, the Bible tells us. And so God's love of justice, right, doesn't just work against us, right? It actually works for us in that He has promised faithfulness, and to walk back on that promise would be unjust. So it's astounding in that sense, right? But there's still, I think, for me, a burden, a question that, that has yet to be answered, and that's this. What do I have to do? Because the fact of the matter is, is that if there is injustice in me, if there is injustice in you, if there is injustice in us collectively, then in order for justice to take place, that injustice must be made right. 
It has to be. So if, if I just get off scot-free, if the Lord just extends to me astounding grace, extravagant mercy, is that really justice? Right? This is why we're always so, like, so unwilling to, uh, to sort of look at those you know, people who make the, the dying confession, particularly maybe uh, inmates, right, who are on death row. They're, they're, they're sort of on their way. They, they've recognized what their fate is, and all of a sudden, you know, of course, all of a sudden, oh, yes, like I believe in Jesus, all, you know, all that. Because we say, wait a minute, that's not, that's not justice. He's just getting off scot-free. How can God, right, how can God be just and not punish? How can God be just and not punish injustice? Not just in the broader culture, but in me. In my mind, that actually seems unjust, right? And this is what makes the birth of Christ so central. This is what makes the advent, the coming of Jesus into human history as God in the flesh so incredible. This is what makes the incarnation of Jesus, the coming of Jesus in the flesh, something that should be celebrated not just for a season, but all throughout our lives. Because Jesus the Christ stepped into human flesh to live how we were meant to live, to live justly. And then he was punished as one who was unjust. This means that Jesus really took our sin. Do you understand that? Like So when Jesus came, stepped into human flesh, went to the cross on our behalf, there was a real exchange that, that happened there. It, it isn't just, okay, Jesus died, God's like, all right, you guys are forgiven, cool. But that in that moment, Jesus, God in the flesh, right, taking upon himself human form, became obedient to death on a cross. And in that moment, he literally exchanged places with us. In that all of our injustice was placed upon Him. Because here's the thing, right? We're talking about justice and injustice, and I know that this all might be kind of confusing in, in terms of maybe how I'm presenting it, but it, it's not only unjust, right, to, to not punish someone who has committed injustice. It's also unjust to punish someone who has not committed injustice, Right? And so here's the thing, Jesus came, He lived a perfect life, there was no reason. He had conjured up, He had done no thing, no thing that would have justified the death that He experienced. So, how does that work? Right? The way it works is that there had to be a real and literal exchange in that when the Bible tells us that He Himself bore our sins on the tree, it means He Himself bore our sins on the tree. It means that that injustice that I have perpetuated in my past, that injustice which I will perpetuate in the future, 
unfortunately, was all placed upon the incarnate God of the universe, the coming of the Son of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is why He came. That is why He took upon Himself flesh. You know what's funny? I look at Olivia right now, my daughter, and I think, Jesus used to look like this. Jesus, right? Jesus had to, had to learn how all of his functions worked. Jesus experienced a time in life where all he could say was ba, 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 ba. Right? Jesus had to be nursed. Jesus came, the God of the universe, right? God incarnate. It tells us that Jesus was there in the beginning with God. Jesus isn't just some cre- another creation, right? No, he's, he's there in the beginning with God. He's existed for all times. He's the Alpha and the Omega that this God would humble himself in that way. And not so that he could grow up and be a king, but so that he could grow up and be crucified on a Roman cross in relative obscurity for you and me is utterly astounding. And this is what we celebrate in celebrating Advent. That God sent His anointed one to liberate captives. That God sent His anointed one as the sign of this everlasting covenant. And so who are we and what do we do in light of who Jesus is and what he's done? I'm going to read a a significant portion of text from 2 Corinthians because it's just utterly, utterly appropriate as a reminder of who we are and whose we are. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 4 reads like this. I'm going to read really through the end of the chapter. So like I said, it's going to take me a minute here, but bear with me. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. So, right, a a God of justice, right? A God who hates robbery and wrong, things that we are comprised of. 2 Corinthians tells us that such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency is from this God who has said to us, I will make an everlasting covenant with you irrespective of all of your wrong and robbery. Verse 6. Our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory came to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. 
But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so here's what Isaiah is saying. Here's what 2 Corinthians is saying. Here's what Jesus in His coming to us is saying. We are utterly insufficient in and of ourselves. We are utterly incapable of acting justice, of of promoting justice in its fullness, in in the holistic sense of its nature. But God makes us sufficient. And that what you'll notice in Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3 from last week and Isaiah 61 verses 8 through 9 from today and 2 Corinthians and the remainder of the Bible is this. That where we were incapable, God has been capable on our behalf. He's made us sufficient That's who we are. And He's made us sufficient to what end? Well, it tells us in in short, in in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it tells us that He's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. The same everlasting covenant that Isaiah tells us would come through this anointed one, this Jesus to be ministers of a new covenant, to do true justice by offering ourselves wholly to God and acting in ways that are true to God's heart for all things. And that's going to express itself racially. It's going to express itself socially. It's going to express itself criminally. It's going to express itself economically. It's going to express itself in every myriad of ways because God designed us in such a way that we would experience Him in fullness, in rhythm, and in harmony. And Jesus has come to institute that new kingdom where that takes place. This is the progression of verse 9 from Isaiah chapter chapter 61, right? It tells us that God makes a covenant with us, one of everlasting faithfulness to us. It promises us that He will be present with us, right? Which is not only true in that the angels proclaimed over Jesus that He was Emmanuel, God with us, but it's also true in that Jesus told us that it was better that we should leave so the Spirit might remain. The Spirit actually dwells inside of us. It tells us that that God promises the Anointed One will actually work on our behalf. It tells us that God promises That His blessing in the giving of His Son will make us unique. It will mark us. And it will mark us in such a way that it will cause the nations to recognize Him. The everlasting covenant that God makes with His people in Isaiah 61 finds its climax and institution at Advent. It is the means by which true justice is done and the means by which the nations will acknowledge God's blessing. 
we ultimately do justice because we've been made just. Not by our own works, not by our sufficiency, but through the sufficiency of our Lord. So let us rejoice this morning that Jesus has come. Let us long for His return to make complete all good things and to reign and to rule in grace, in mercy, and in justice all at the same time. And finally, let's be reminded of Jesus' work on our behalf by partaking of communion together. If you'll pray with me.